In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the stars, the moon, the trees, the water, the land. He created everything. And he saw that it was good. Then on the last day of this week that he was creating the universe, he decided, let us make man in our image. And so what did God do? He created man in his image. He created Adam. He created Eve. And he created this, this world so that we could be in relationship with him. So he pulled Adam and Eve aside and he said, look, there's a few things that I need you to do in order for this relationship, this community, this, this diversity to actually work. First thing, Adam and Eve, I, I need you guys to be fruitful and multiply. Second, I need you guys to have dominion over this world. And third, hear me when I say this. You see that, that tree that's in the middle of the garden? Don't eat from that tree. That's the knowledge of good and evil, and I don't want you to do that. But of course, we see in Genesis chapter 3, they don't listen to God. They do their own thing. They fall into selfishness. They fall into idolatry. They want to do things their own way. So they go to that tree, and they eat, and they eat, and they eat. And sin is introduced to this world, and our relationship, humanity's relationship with God changes. See, here's the issue with sin. Sin is a bad representation, a terrible representation of what God created. And sin is something that God can't even deal with. You see, God is so holy, so clean, so pure, that he can't even be near sin. Because it messes, messes with the relationship. So God distanced himself from humanity. But thankfully... In that moment, God created a plan to reconcile the world back to himself. Many years later, we meet this, this man named Abraham. And Abraham is caught off guard when God comes to him and says, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. In fact, your offspring are going to be so many that we're not even going to be able to count them. They're going to be more than the sand on the seashore. Not only am I going to make your nation many, but also I'm going to give them a land to live in and to flourish in. Abraham says, you know what, God, that sounds amazing. Here's the issue. I don't have a son. If you want me to be this father of many nations, then I kind of need a son. So both Abraham and his wife Sarah start praying and, and interceding and asking God for, for him to give them a son. And sure enough, God answers their prayers, fulfills his promise. And Abraham, at the age of 96, has a son. He names his son Isaac. His, his son Isaac grows up and has sons of his own, one of them being Jacob. Jacob grows up and has 12 sons, one of them being named Joseph. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers because of their own selfishness. But Joseph makes the best of a bad situation, ends up in Egypt second in command, and oversees a time of famine in Egypt and saves thousands of people. Joseph's family ends up going to Egypt to get food, and that's where they stay for a very, very long time. See, sometime later, the, the nation of Israel becomes many people. So many that the Pharaoh at the time is a little concerned that they're going to overthrow him. So what, is, what do they do? Make them slaves. But God doesn't want his people to be, to be slaves. That's not what he designed them to be. He wanted to be in relationship with them. So he sends Moses, who was born a Hebrew, raised an Egyptian to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And there's a struggle and there's plagues, but eventually Pharaoh lets them go. They go across the Red Sea, flee from their slavery, and get to the desert in Mount Sinai. Finally, we're starting to see that the promise that God made to Abraham of this great nation is coming together. 
And he fulfills this promise on Mount Sinai where Moses and God hang out together on the top of this mountain. And they, they finalize the covenant. They finalize and figure out the, test, the, the Ten Commandments and, and all these rules and stipulations about how the Israelites are supposed to live. But ultimately, God wanted them to know this simple thing. That he was going to be their God and they were going to be his people. God says, I'm going to be your king. I'm going to be the one in charge. And what I ask you to do is just, just a few rules. Many of us don't like reading the book of Leviticus because it's boring, right? It's filled with rules, things that we don't necessarily want to read. But there's so much beauty in this book because halfway through, God turns to Israel and he says, you know what? We've done these things. I'm asking you to do these things. So that you can be holy as I am holy. You see, when we sin, we separate ourselves from God. We, we deserve destruction because of our sin. And, and God tells the Israelites to take a lamb, take a sheep, and lay it on the altar. And that sheep takes the weight of their sin. So that they can become righteous and holy. So that they can be with their God in relationship. Because that's how they were designed. That's how we were designed. But sure enough, Israel don't follow God's rules. They fall into idolatry. They fall into selfishness. They really enjoy doing things their own way. But even despite that, God allows them to go into their promised land and live there and conquer. Then one day, Israel goes to God and says, God, you remember that thing about you being our king? Well, we kind of want our own earthly king. We want to be like all the other nations around us. We don't, we don't want to be different. We don't want you to be our king. So God raises up a human king named Saul. Saul starts off really great, but then shies away from being a really great king. Why? Because he doesn't follow God's plan. Then another, another man named David is, is risen up to be the king of Israel, and he's a man after God's own heart. He's so amazing. He beats Goliath. He's just such a great example of what it looks like to follow God. But guess what? He's still not perfect. He still messes up. He still sins. Even though he tries to allow Israel to follow God's covenant that he made on Mount Sinai, still it's not working out. One day, David goes up to God and says, God, I'm living and sleeping in a house, but then you're living in a tent. Can I build you a house, please? Please? God says, no. It's not your job. It's your son's job. But since we're on the topic of houses, I'm going to make your house and your name great. In fact, through your line, David, I'm going to fix this thing. You know, this, this separation that we have between sin and me because I'm so holy and you're so broken. Or I, through your line, David, I'm going to build a bridge to make it right. I'm going to build a bridge to fix this. Through somebody in your line. David says, well, that sounds pretty cool. Unfortunately, David's son Solomon builds the temple, then after that falls into selfishness, idolatry. The nation of Israel split up into two, the north and the south. Both nations ended up in exile, living in a land they don't understand or know. God, through his grace, eventually allows them back to Jerusalem where they first started. And they build the temple. They build the wall. But something's different. It's not like how it was before. It doesn't feel like God's there. And then we see year after year, after year after year after year, God isn't saying anything. And the Israelites are wondering, God, where's your promise? What are you doing? Then in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the descendant of Abraham, the descendant of David. You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. The promises that God made to Abraham, to Moses, to David, all pointed towards Jesus. So in the Old Testament, we have this tension of when is this going to be fixed? And then when Jesus comes to the picture, we all know what's about to happen. I love what Philippians chapter 2 says. It says that Jesus didn't count for the fact that he was God as something to be taken for granted. 
He wasn't sitting up on his throne in heaven to be like, you know what, I'm comfortable up here. I'm going to do my own thing. No, he humbles himself to the form of a baby so that he could be with us. So that he could one day die on the cross for our sins. Do you realize how much humility you must have to be a God to be a baby? They can't control anything in their life. But God came down to fix the relationship that was broken back in the garden. So Jesus shows us what it looks like to be perfect in this life. He was fully man. He was fully God. He talked about this idea about that the kingdom of God is, is now but not yet, which is still confusing to us today. But he also says, I'm the messianic king. I'm the person that you guys have been waiting for. Some people believed him, some people didn't. He didn't care. One day he's put on trial for something he didn't do. He's flogged and beaten for something he didn't deserve. And then he goes on the cross, something that we deserved. Why? Because he loves us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see, Jesus on the cross was thinking about you his love that he has for you, how much he cares for you and sees you and understands that sin is a big deal and sin separates us and he's tired and sick of it separating us from him. So he put his life on the line to take the weight of our sin, just like they did in the Old Testament with, with the sheep and with the lambs. He did it with his own body, with his own blood. So Jesus dies on the cross. Three days later, he's He's risen again, spends 40 days with his disciples, with his people, telling them about what's coming. And then after those 40 days, he ascends into heaven. Two days later, the Holy Spirit comes down in the upper room with his disciples in fire, Scripture says. And now we can live with him forever. We're in the year of power here at Bridgeway. And we cannot operate in power. We cannot operate with the Holy Spirit if it wasn't for the cross. If it wasn't for what Jesus did. The fill in the blank this weekend is this. Grace inspires gratitude. Grace inspires gratitude. Well, if we haven't met before, my name is Pastor Cliff, and I'm the high school pastor here. And I'll tell you what, Youth Takeover Weekend is one of my favorite weekends. I love seeing the youth of this church serving. Um, if you haven't yet, I'd love for you to take a moment and thank one of our middle schoolers or high schoolers who are serving. Uh, they love doing this, and I'm sure they would love to hear a little quick thank you from you. We're taking a break from our series going throughout the book of Acts. And we're talking about gratitude today. The power of gratitude. And I know gratitude is probably something that we've heard about in our lives. I'm, I'm sure gratitude is, is something that we want to have in our lives. But I, I think the beauty of it can get lost in our everyday life. But as what I just shared with you, gratitude stems from the gospel. Stems from this grace, this gift that was given to us that we didn't deserve. And through understanding the gospel, we can't help but be grateful. And there's so many examples of what living a life of gratitude looks like in the Bible. And I want to give you a couple real quick. The first one is in 1 Samuel chapter 1. There's this woman named Hannah. Hannah has been barren for many years. She hasn't been able to, to bear a child. And that's something that she's been desiring for years and years and years and years. And so she cries out to God. She says, God, help me. This is all that I've been designed to do. Please help me bear this child. God answers her and gives her a son. She names that son Samuel, and Samuel becomes one of the most prolific and powerful prophets this world has ever seen. You know what she does in 1 Samuel chapter 2? She writes a song in the form of a prayer, praising God. She says, my heart exalts in the Lord. In fact, this prayer in 1 Samuel 2 
A lot of theologians and commentators talk about the significance of the weight of this psalm and the example of this song to all of us, to not only the Old Testament, but also the New Testament. My heart exalts in the Lord. She praises God for what he has given her. Another example is in Luke chapter 17, 10 lepers go up to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, we hear you're a powerful dude. We hear that you heal people. Can you heal us? Jesus is like, sure. So he heals the 10 lepers. What's interesting is one of those lepers, only one of them, goes back to Jesus and scripture says, praises God with a loud voice giving him thanks. He thanks Jesus for everything that he did for him and, and praises him. And, and Jesus is a little perplexed. He's like, where are the other nine dudes that I just healed? Where are they gone? You're praising me, but what are they doing? You know what Jesus says to this man who was previously a leper? He says, go, for your faith has made you well. Well, I, I would argue that uh, not only did his faith make him well, but his gratitude made him well. You see, gratitude is good for us. It's healthy for us. It's something that, that we need in our lives. Let me, let me share you a couple reasons why I, I believe that gratitude is powerful. But here's the thing. I, I need you to know. I want to be real with you for a second. Gratitude is not something I am great at personally. <laughs> Just ask my wife. Ask my family. Ask my friends. I, I'm not somebody, when I have an opportunity to be grateful, I am not the first one to step in. I, I might be the first one to talk about the negative. But I know that even as the Lord has asked me to speak on this topic this weekend, that there is power and a transformative nature when it comes to gratitude. So here's some reasons why gratitude is powerful. You see, gratitude opens the door to healthier relationships. See, what happens when we um, have positive gestures towards somebody else, it, it benefits us by releasing oxytocin. When oxytocin is released, it has the power to control our emotional response. We can regulate our emotions when we're grateful. Because when that oxytocin is released, we feel stronger with this person. We feel connected. We feel like we're sharing in something together. Gratitude can increase sleep and mood. How many of you would love to sleep more, right? I know it's not just me. Sleeping is amazing. I wish I could sleep more. A good first step to that maybe would be looking at what gratitude looks like in your life. Gratitude increases empathy and lowers aggression. Now, if you don't care about that, the people you spend your time with do. I'm sure the people around you would love for you to practice empathy. Love for you to maybe lower your aggression a, just, a, just a tad. See, gratitude lessens our anxiety and depression. Why would it do that? Because it gets our minds off of me, off of us, off yourself, and onto somebody else. See, gratitude is good for us. And today, we have an opportunity. Tomorrow, next month, next year, we have an opportunity to choose gratitude. But many of us, instead of choosing gratitude, we can choose entitlement. You see, entitlement is actually the opposite of gratitude and creates unhealth in our lives. When we think that we deserve things, it's hard for us to be grateful. When we walk into a room and we're like, man, all these people in this room, yeah, they owe me something. They're the way that they are because of me. I'm awesome. It's hard to look outside yourself. It's hard to take on personal responsibility when you're just thinking everybody else owes you something. You know, rarely do people say, man, I love how entitled that person is. <laughs> but maybe, just maybe... They might say, I love how grateful that person is. Something else we, we may choose instead of gratitude is we can choose envy. I know many of us have probably heard the, the age-old cliche of comparison is, is the thief of all joy, right? We say it probably without even thinking. Well, why do we say it? Why is it a cliche? Well, because it's true. 
You see, when we compare ourselves, we often leave ourselves feeling inadequate and and unhappy. Why? Because we focus on what we lack rather than what we have. Therefore, we become dissatisfied with our lives and we start feeling empty. And I would even argue that when we feel envy, we don't even know the full story. Man, maybe the reason why that person got that promotion is because they needed it. Or maybe this person got is getting a lot of attention because they're going through something. Or just maybe, if you said to yourself, I wish I could switch shoes with this person, I bet you if you knew the whole story, you wouldn't. But our envy clouds us. And maybe sometimes, church, gratitude can be simply asking us the question, what do I have that I need? Food, shelter, a bed, friends, family. What are the things that I have that I need? How can I praise God for that today? Something else that we choose instead of gratitude is we can choose grumbling. And I'll tell you what, grumbling is one of the easiest things we can do. I know for myself, I, complaining is fun, right? Somebody cuts you off on the freeway and you're just like, hello, and we say all things that maybe we wouldn't say in church, but you know, only God hears it, he can take it, right? Or we, we complain about things that we, that we don't, we can't even control, or maybe we have an expectation of someone and they don't meet that expectation and we start complaining. And maybe you're me where you have an expectation on somebody else and you forget to communicate it and you're like, oh, I thought I told you that. And they're like, no. Right? Like, complaining is, is, is so easy. It's simple. It reminds me of the Israelites when they're in the desert. Right? Listen to this. They have, they receive food from the sky, by the way. Okay? Water and direction. A pillar of fire shows up at night showing them where they're supposed to go. And you know what they do? They grumble. They complain. They go up to Moses and they're like, Moses, we don't want to go back to Egypt. Moses is like, you were slaves in Egypt. They're like, at least we got good food. Right? Like grumbling and complaining. You're like, and we're like, what are you thinking? But even as we laugh at that, I think if we were in the same shoes as the Israelites, we might be complaining to, see, we must stay away from these cycles of, com- of complaint and turn our focus to praise, testimony, and thanks. I'm a little late to, to the game here, but I just started watching the show Ted Lasso. And I, I really, really enjoy this, this TV show. But in, in one of the scenes, um, Ted is playing darts um, in a bar. And, and this show is all about this American soccer coach who goes over to England to become a football coach, which football means soccer in England. And uh, Ted and the former owner of the club that he's coaching for is playing darts. And before they start playing darts, they, they put a wager up. They put a bet. And you see, you see them throwing the darts back and forth, and then finally they get to the end of the game, and it's, it's Ted's turn, and Ted has three shots to win. And they need to be like perfect shots. He needs a bunch of points and he needs to hit all these different spots on the dartboard. And before Ted starts throwing the darts, he turns to his opponent and he says, you know what, when I was growing up, I had a buddy of mine that always encouraged me to be curious. You see, curiosity is something that opens our minds rather than closes them. You see, when we're curious about other people or what's going on in their life or what they're doing, We actually get to see the world in a different light or for how it actually is. He turns to his opponent and he says, you know, if you you had asked me before we started this bet that if I'd ever played darts before, I would tell you that I've been playing darts all my life, every single week with my dad. He He throws the first dart and he lands wherever it's supposed to go. I don't know how darts work. And then... He continues to talk about curiosity. He's like, you see, here's the thing with being curious. It, it actually allows us to not put everything in a box. 
instead of being judgmental and assuming that we know everything and that this other person we're having a relationship with or conversation with doesn't know anything, our minds are open for conversation, our minds are open for relationship, and we actually see what's in front of us. He throws the last two darts, probably one of them hits the bullseye, I don't know where the other one goes, but he wins. Ted wins the game. You see, by not being curious, this man missed something pretty important about Ted's life. See, in the same way, when we're entitled, envious, and, and when we're grumbling, we miss the wonder and delight of God's creation. What joy are we missing out on because we aren't being grateful? How much am I missing because I'm not paying attention to what's going on around me? You see, when we're, we're judgmental, envious, all these types of things, we see the world in a box. We put God in a box. We put our loved ones in a box, and they can't get out of that box. But what if they were designed to get out of that box? And yet, we're too closed off. I'm too closed off to see it. See, when we choose these things, we give up all the benefits of gratitude. We say we'd rather be grumbling than sleeping better. You know, I, I'd, I'd rather feel entitled than practice empathy with my loved ones. I'd rather, I'm fine with my aggressive tendencies as long as I feel like I deserve something. See, there's blessings we miss when we aren't grateful. Let me give you another example. I'm sure many of us love sharing gifts with our loved ones, whether it be Christmas morning or a birthday gift or whatever. You see, my mom is probably one of the most generous and thoughtful gift givers I've ever seen. See, when everybody else at a birthday party is, is talking amongst themselves during the, the opening gifts portion of the party or laughing or whatever, you see, my mom is sitting right next to the the birthday boy or girl with a pad out, ready to write down who's given the gift. See, my, my mom loves to see the face of them opening up this gift and seeing the joy that they exclude. Right? She spends hours and hours trying to find the perfect gift, and she's so excited to see this person open it. I always knew growing up that I was about to open a really good gift if my mom was just sitting there just being like. <laughs> I promise she was a little less creepy than that. But. <laughs> and almost every single time, it was a great gift. But isn't that what we want when we give someone a gift? We want to see their joy. We want to see their excitement. See, showing gratitude towards the one who gave you a gift honors the giver and encourages them to continue. The donor of a gift and the recipient of a gift are forever entwined. When we take care of this gift, it shows respect and honor to the person who gave it to us. But this also means that part of gratitude is being, being willing to receive. You ever go out to lunch with a friend and you fight over the check? No, I'll take it. No, I'll take it. No, I'll take it. What if that friend woke up that morning and wanted to bless you? Wanted to bless you with that lunch. And yet you are taking joy away from them because maybe you're feeling a little prideful. See, Jesus has given us this gift of freedom, of life forever with him. See, he came down on this earth, as I explained earlier, to fix this whole sin issue thing so that we could be in relationship with him. It's a gracious gift. It's a, it's a gift that we didn't deserve. It's something that is hard for me to even explain. But you see, that's what happens when we understand grace. It initiates, inspires gratitude. The Apostle Paul talks a lot about gratitude in his letters. All over his letters, he talks about the, the joy of rejoicing in the Lord. And it's always curious to me why he thinks about this. Because his life was a little rough. First, he's a murderer of Christians. 
And then God blinds him for three days and says, Paul, stop doing that. Tell people about me. Tell people about my son. So Paul becomes one of the greatest evangelists this world has ever seen. But being an evangelist is tough. (laughs) He has to go into cities where they don't know him. They don't want to listen to him. He's mocked. He's thrown out of these cities. He's put in jail. He's shipwrecked. He travels thousands of miles to to hear people not even want to listen to him. He has to transform so many different things. And still, he tells his churches to be grateful. Still, he tells his churches to rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. I think somewhere along his journey, Paul realized that sometimes deep affliction and joy may go together. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul's encouraging the Colossians to pursue maturity. It doesn't matter what they're doing, whether it be watching their kids, doing accounting, teaching, whatever it may be. Do everything by giving thanks to God. Earlier in this, chap- in this chapter, Paul says one of his most famous statements. He says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And then about 15 verses later, he, he talks about rejoicing. You know what that tells me? It tells me that there's a connection between gratitude and heavenly things. See, when we set our minds on things above, not on earthly things, we have a greater opportunity and capacity to experience gratitude. Why? Because when we look at things above, we're reminded of the gospel, we're reminded of this grace that what inspires gratitude. When we stay focused on this earth, we dwell in grumbling and entitlement and envy. But when we set our minds on things above, not on earthly things, that gratitude is flowing. It's flowing. Again, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul, in his final instructions to this church, he does this a lot. Right before the letter's done, he's like, by the way, before I leave, before I'm done, there's a couple things I need you to know before I'm done, before I leave. Kind of like his last second gifts to them. He says this in verse 16 of chapter 5. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. See, the Thessalonians were, were new converts. They were new Christians. They didn't necessarily know what they were doing. They were asking Paul to encourage them and give them instruction moving forward. Right? Earlier, I shared with you what our fill-in-the-blank was this weekend, which is grace inspires gratitude. I would, I would add another fill-in-the-blank, and that's this. Prayer inspires gratitude. You see, this prayer that Paul's talking about, not just our, our words from, that come from our mouths, but a spirit of prayer. And in this spirit of prayer, we're realizing our dependence on God for all that we have and all that we are. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God is always working out things for those whom he loves. And guess what? He loves all of us. But here's the hardship. When we're going through a trial, it's hard to look at the bright side. When we're going through something so deep that we don't even know how to process, it's hard to look at the bright side. And man, quite frankly, one of the toughest and probably worst advices that any of us could receive from someone is, oh, oh, just look on the bright side. Oh, just look on the bright side. Has anybody else heard that from someone and just wanted to? Right? Because, because actually, I don't think that's what Paul is encouraging us to do here. I don't think that's what God is, is asking us to do. But in fact, it's, it's not about looking on the bright side of a trial, but understanding 
Our God is with us in our darkest moments and gratitude and grief can go hand in hand. See, gratitude and grief don't need to be mutually exclusive. But when we understand and know who is walking through us, with us through this trial, that's what brings us gratitude. Paul continues to talk about gratitude in his letter to the Philippians. And this this letter is a little different context-wise because when Paul writes this letter, he's in prison. And the Philippians are a little concerned about Paul. And so they're like, hey, Paul. They, they write him a letter. They send him a gift. They're like, hey, how you doing? Praying for you. Hope you're doing okay in prison. Paul writes the letter back, and he thanks them, and he encourages them. And Philippians 4, verse 4, he says this, Rejoice in the Lord, in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. See, I think there's two things that jump out to me in this verse. First one, when tough things come your way, rejoice. Nothing is beyond the Lord's help. See, the verse starts with rejoice. Oh, by the way, if you didn't hear me, rejoice. And then ends, the Lord is at hand. Church, we don't rejoice because of all of our changing circumstances. We don't rejoice because life can be really difficult. We don't rejoice because, man, we're, we're growing even though it doesn't feel like we're growing. We rejoice for the simple purpose of the person who does not change. See, earlier when I, when I started my, my message and presented the gospel to you, I hope you saw a God whose character is consistent. I hope you saw a God whose character is faithful. You see, when God said something, he was going to complete it. When he said, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son, he gave him a son. When he said, David, through your line, I'm going to fix this whole thing, it happened. And when he told Israel, I'm going to love you and be there with you no matter how unfaithful you are to me, he stayed consistent. He stayed faithful. See, gratitude comes from knowing Jesus. See, when we know Jesus, when we know who he is, and we know what the gospel is and why that's significant and why he had to die on the cross for us and why did he have to rise again, then we can't help but be grateful and have gratitude flow from every part of our being. So when we say God is good, we actually mean it. (laughs) And we actually know it. We feel it. We believe it. Second thing I see in Philippians 4.4 is gentleness connects us or connects to gratitude. Paul says that to let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Another translation for reasonableness is gentleness, right? And what combats entitlement? What combats a, a person who walks in and is like, man, I deserve so much from you people. Man, you guys owe me so much. What combats that is somebody coming in and being like, hey, how can I serve you? Someone who's gentle in heart. It's different. See, genuine Christian joy and gratitude is not inward looking. It's not thinking about concentrating on the, th- on the needs of ourselves or needs for our own happiness, but on the needs of others. That's where we learn to rejoice. You see, our gratitude not only blesses ourselves, but it blesses others. I love what Christine Paul says in her book, Living into Community, she says, our thankfulness to God is shown in the care we give to one another and to our enemies. You might be asking yourself the question, Cliff, I I understand that gratitude is a thing, but how am I supposed to actually live this out? Well, Christine says that it, it means to serve our neighbors, to serve our enemies. I'll tell you what, The last thing I want to do is serve a Dodger fan. That's the last thing I want to do. So that's why Josh Oot and I never talk to one another. 
Our office is on the separate sides of the office, and I honestly don't even know what he does here. <laughs> He's also a Seahawks fan, by the way. But maybe that's it. Maybe this idea of gratitude is countercultural. Maybe it's different. Maybe it's, it's not necessarily praise in our modern culture. You know why? Because there's so many opportunities for us to be ungrateful. As I mentioned before, it could be driving down the road and somebody cutting us off. Or maybe it's setting an expectation that somebody doesn't meet. We can go on and on and on and on about reasons why we can be ungrateful. But gratitude is different. Because it makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? See, it's way more comfortable to, to grumble. It's way more comfortable to be envious or to be entitled. But gratitude, it's uncomfortable because it's a reminder that we need other people. It's a reminder that our lives are dependent on the gifts and the generosity. It's a reminder that we actually need Jesus. And actually, we deserved death. But because Jesus loves us so much, he died on the cross for us. And from that grace, it inspires our gratitude. See, gratitude is uncomfortable because it means we're indebted to someone. We don't want to be indebted to someone. Debt is usually a negative connotation. We, we don't want to be indebted to somebody. Doesn't sound right. What I've found in my life that helps me with gratitude is the concept of having the right perspective. And I think the best book in the Bible that can help us with perspective is the book of Psalms. So I'm going to re be reading in Psalms chapter 13. And the context of this psalm, uh, it's written by David, King David. But this is before he was king. In fact, he was fleeing from the previous king, Saul, because Saul was jealous of him and wanted to kill him. So David is fleeing for his life, fearful for his life. Running to cave after cave, running to forest after forest, tree after tree. In the midst of this trial that he was experiencing, he writes this word, these words in Psalms 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. God, where are you? God, my enemies are obviously winning. I, I feel like I'm about to die. You're supposed to be with me. You promised that you're always going to be with me. Can you, like, give me some superpowers or something so I can live? God, where are you? Where are your promises? And then in verse 5, he brings perspective. But I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You notice how David doesn't shy away from his raw emotions, from his real feelings. But at the end of the day, what he knows for a fact is who is in charge. And his response is to sing to the Lord. Why? Because he has dealt bountifully with him. David again in Psalm 23 gives us another example of perspective. The context of this psalm before I read it is the same. David is still fleeing from Saul. He's still fearing for his life. And he just can't help but speak the truth. One of his most famous psalms, he says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, 
they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, if I was David and I was facing the valley of the shadow of death, you know what I would do? Nope. I'd go around. (laughs) That would not be my route. But David has confidence in his God. He's like, you know what? I'm going to go through the valley of the shadow of death. You know why? Because who's with me? His rod, his staff, it's going to comfort me. Might be a little pillow. That would be nice. Right? Like he knows. He's confident. Who's with him? He doesn't care what's about to face him because his God is there. Jesus refers to David in this psalm in John 10, 11. He says, you know that shepherd that, that David was talking about? Yeah, I'm that good shepherd. And you know what shepherds do? Probably won't be surprised by this. They lay down their lives for their sheep. They lay down their life for their sheep. That's the shepherd we have. That's the good shepherd we have. That's our leader. That's our God. That's the one who loves us. I told you earlier that perspective is not necessarily something that is one of my biggest strengths. And gratitude is not something that I'm super, super great at because of perspective. Sometimes I can focus so much on the negative that I don't really see what's happening around me. About two years ago, I was driving uh, to Santa Cruz. I was the guest speaker for one of MSM's winter camps. And I stopped in the Bay Area because I wanted to see my family, have dinner with them. And I had dinner with my grandparents, my parents, and my uncle. It was really fun seeing them. And we went to this nice Mexican restaurant. I had this massive burrito. It was amazing. But then it was time for me to leave to drive the rest of the way to Santa Cruz. And as I, as I head to, to my truck... Uh, my heart sank. Because as I looked at my truck, my back two windows were smashed in. As I walk a little bit closer, I noticed that all my stuff was stolen. In my truck that day, I had my computer bag and then all my, my clothes in a different bag. And in my computer bag, I had my computer, my iPad, my AirPods, my notes for that weekend, but also on my my computer, I, I had over four and a half years of sermons and youth ministry materials that I saved on the hard drive rather than the cloud or Google Drive because, frankly, I don't know what those are. <laughs> and then I realized what was in my clothing bag, and it was clothes that I really desired and shoes that I really liked. There was a bag that was gifted to me. Both bags were gifted to me. And I couldn't help but in that moment think about all the people I'd let down. MSM didn't have a camp speaker, speaker anymore the night of their first session. Pastor Ryan had to scramble and, and speak on my behalf. I lost all those years of work. I lost all that technology. How was I supposed to be grateful? How was I supposed to be grateful? I tried my best to have a smile on my face, even though it was hard. My, my parents did a good job of consoling me. My wife was on the phone trying to console me and help me down. And it was just really hard. I felt like I lost everything. I felt vulnerable. And I felt like I left down, let down so many different people. And I was just angry. I lost all my stuff when I in February of that year. And then the following March, by the end of March, I had all the technology and all the things that were stolen from me gifted to me. Not through the the regular channels of insurance, but through friends and family who were there for me. I had some friends give me AirPods that were extra that they didn't realize they had. I put my, my name into a raffle at a conference I was at Guess who won the iPad? 
But my gratitude in this story doesn't stem from me getting all my stuff back. But it's because through the loss of my possessions, I was reminded of the true value I have in family and friends. In in the midst of this trial, the Lord surrounded me with people who loved me, who cared for me, and who supported me. I didn't want to receive these gifts that I got. I didn't feel like I deserved them. But God showed me who he put in my life. And I couldn't help but respond in gratitude. Can I have the worship team come on up here? So I have a couple questions for you today. First question is this. What are the things in your life that you've received as a gift? Where has grace abounded in your life? When have you realized the truth of the gospel and the truth of what Jesus did on the cross for you and praised him for it? You know, I've seen, I've seen some families, what they do is they write a Thanksgiving board on their refrigerator or on a whiteboard in their house. And what they do on this board is they, they talk about all the things that they're grateful for that week and all the things that God is doing for them in that week where they can praise him in the midst of everything else that's going on. Or maybe it's, it's around the dinner table or with a friend out at lunch and you say, hey, let's take a moment and share with one another what we're grateful for. You see, too often in our lives, we're so busy with, with work, with family, with work and family and more, work and family. Oh, and then we also have to sleep that we don't actually take the time to pause and to say, oh, actually there's these things in my life that I'm grateful for. These are the gifts that God has given me and I'm gonna praise him for it. My last question for you is, what do you have the opportunity to thank God for today? Since we're talking about gratitude, felt like the most applicable thing to close out our service is to thank God together in worship. So here in a second, the worship team is going to lead us in a song called I Thank God. And we've done this song here in main service before, but let me tell you, this is the youth version. So first things first, I'm going to invite you guys to stand up with me. And if you're in BYA, HSM, MSM, come up front. Come up front. And what we're going to do today is we're going to close this out praising God for what He deserves. And guess what? We got hand motions today. There's, there's something about church, there's something about when we physically praise our God with hand motions, it allows our body to be like, oh yeah, this is what I've been thinking about. This is what I've been wanting to praise God for. So I'd invite you to engage even in the hand motions. Clap, thank God, praise Him for everything that He has given you. Because gratitude is not good for you, not only good for you, it's healthy, it's right. And God deserves it. Amen? Amen. So, Father, today, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for what you did on the cross. We thank you that because of what Jesus did, there's a bridge between us and we can be in relationship with you. And, God, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will never feel fear, evil. Why? Because your rod and your staff, they comfort us will not be weary. We will not be weary. So Father, we we praise you. We love you. And God, we give you this time because we thank you. Because you pick us up, you turn us around. You've placed our feet on solid ground, Father. And in your name, God, we say, amen. Let's worship.
Fala que 